Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. And look, there's a lot to say about the COP26 climate negotiations. They wrapped up over the weekend. That's probably the most simple thing to say. Um, and they also delivered what the president of the negotiations, Alok Sharma, called a fragile win for the planet. Uh, he said the goal of limiting global warming to one and a half degrees was still alive, but its pulse was weak. And of course, one and a half degrees warming is still very catastrophic for, for big parts of the world. But um, the kinds of wins um, Mr Sharma was referring to include nearly 200 countries signing up to a new pact that requires countries to return next year, not in five years, which it was before, but next year with a ratcheted up 2030 emissions target and greater ambition. And over 100 countries signed up to limit methane and deforestation. And while uh, you might have heard there was watered down language in the pact, um, the commitment to phase down coal rather than phase out coal um, still means the sector will go away um, but maybe that trajectory will be a, a less um, steep slope um, but yeah so COP26 it, it did some things it finally completed the rule book as well that underpins the Paris Agreement which has taken uh, the, the world's government six years to complete that rule book um, author Jeff Sparrow has been writing a lot about climate change lately and in a, a positive tone it has to be said and um, uh, also weaving in there the role of capitalism in driving it. Uh, Crimes Against Nature is the name of his book, which is out now. And Jeff, it's great to have you back on. Hello. Always great to be back with you guys. How are you both doing? Yeah, good. Yeah, pretty good. And um, I mean, look, you cover an impressive amount of ground in your book. Uh, Jeff, uh, around the, the the role of governments, but also the role of companies and capitalism in driving climate change. And I guess if we focus a little bit still on, on the COP26 negotiations, we saw Alok Sharma apologise and he said, you know, he was deeply sorry about the language in the pact. How much do you think vested interests con- contributed to the results we got um, over the last couple of weeks, do you think? Yeah, well, this is a fascinating subject, isn't it? I mean, you probably saw those reports that the fossil fuel delegation was bigger than the delegation of any single um, country. And if you look at the history of attempts to address um, climate change ever since, you know, the, the, the scientific consensus formed during the 1980s, this is a pattern that we've seen over and over again. I think it's actually really important to remember that we tend to think that the most important way of derailing climate action has been through denial. But actually, historically, that's not true. And in fact, the fossil fuel companies have always, right from the start, oscillated between denial and co-option. It's not necessarily that denial is their first choice. In fact, the two forms of obfuscation have often gone um, hand in hand and they've just flip-flopped between one and the other. So I think we have to be super careful about that because time is so short now and we simply cannot afford to, you know, um, cut the the people who are destroying the planet any more slack. The statistic, statistic I keep coming back to is that the vast majority of the carbon the human-induced carbon that is now in the atmosphere was actually emitted after the Kyoto 
talks on climate and not before. So, you know, you have this major conference that pledges to stop climate change, and, in fact, it's after that date that most of the damage done and i think that should be a really dire warning for us yeah about where we are now absolutely and it, it's you know hard not to be cynical in a lot of ways when you see that the australian stalwart glasgow was sponsored by santos i mean it, it's there you know glaring um for all of us to see as well but i suppose at the same time and you, you highlight this in your book that um you know there are around 20 firms or so behind a third of all global emissions so it's clear that in order to bring about big change then you know the corporations need to change and they need to come along for the ride too. What's sort of the best way of advancing that sort of action, do you think? Because, you know, you make a big case for ordinary people being, um, you know, often uh, on the side of conservation and, and, and climate action, even though, you know, the results we've seen over decades has been emissions going up and, and corporations profiting from that. Yeah, and in fact, I think that that was the most important thing that's happened over the... Um over the the, the COP26 proceedings was the the, the really impressive mobilisation that, that took place outside um, the, the conference, and, and this is the, this is the case that I make through through throughout the book that nothing is going to be resolved through business as as usual. That climate change is not a result of a technological failure; it's a result of a systemic uh, economic process and if we have any if we want to have any um, hope of, of not simply fighting climate change but fighting the broader ecological catastrophe of which climate change is one manifestation then we have to fundamentally re the way that we relate to the planet. And, and that's what I think we've really got to put, start putting back on the agenda, not simply, get fo- not simply allow the agenda to be set by the corporations who want to continue business as usual, even if that business as usual means using a different form of technology, because that is not going to cut it. It's, there's no magic solution to this. No inventor is going to come up with some new machine which is going to solve the problem. We have to learn how to live sustainably with the planet, or if we don't do that, we are going to destroy the planet. You know, I, I, I have to say, and I'm sorry about this, uh, Jeff, but when I heard um, Prime Minister Scott Morrison say, I think at the end of last week, um, it, it's all about can-do capitalism. I actually thought of you. I went, oh, I'm so looking forward to speaking with Jeff on Monday so I can say, what do you make of can-do capitalism, Jeff? Yeah, can-do capitalism is quite something, isn't it? I mean, well, one, one of the discussion, one of the um, the points that I, that I make in the book is that Australians are in a privileged position, I think, in this discussion, because we we have an example of a um, of, of a culture that managed to live sustainably within the environment with the environment for fifty thousand years or so. And of course, that's the the culture of the Indigenous Australians and can do capitalism managed to do, to destroy that ecological civilization within um, a space of several years. And I think it's, you know, so, so, so you go back to the descriptions of what happened with white settlement on Australia and you went from a culture in which Indigenous people um, managed the land on which they lived and actually improved the, uh, the, the, the ecology consistently over tens of thousands of years 
you went from that to a situation of, you know, mass erosion and um, terrible devastation in the space of um, only a few years. And, and that's because the nature of capitalism is to expand uncontrollably. And I think this is a really, really important point. Capitalism is an economic system that must grow and must grow blindly. So in that sense, it expands like a cancer. And that makes it almost fundamentally incompatible with a terrestrial terrestrial ecology that is based on certain natural limits. And it seems to me that there's a really, really obvious point that is not addressed nearly enough in the mainstream, that there is a fundamental incompatibility between a system based on blind growth and a natural world that has obvious and definite limits. And until we resolve that contradiction, I think can-do capitalism will continue to do what can-do capitalism has always done, which is to destroy the planet. Yeah, speaking with Jeff Sparrow, he joins us roughly monthly on the show, talking all about his book, a new book, Crimes Against Nature, Capitalism and Global Heating, and, and this coming, of course, in the context uh, this week as the COP26 uh, summit in Glasgow has just wound up. And, and somehow, Jeff, you know, I don't think that the term the Australian way refers to that 50,000 years of, of history and living, you know, harmoniously on the planet before colonisation and, and, you know, the capitalism that, that came afterwards. But as we hear the government talking all about technology and, you know, technology being our saviour and and so on, and obviously, you know, technology is playing a part in this with renewables and all that sort of stuff. You know, the reason we can transition, particularly now, is because renewables have advanced so far in recent years. But are you concerned that as technology does advance, that things like, uh, you know, electric vehicles and, and other gadgets, I suppose, that are part of this green renewable energy revolution won't simply just replace what we already have, but be sort of an, an add-on to that in a way that won't necessarily reduce emissions in line, I suppose, with this sort of ever-expanding capitalist mindset that you've just outlined. Oh, yes, totally. Like, I think this is a really, really basic point, that technology is nothing in and of itself. What matters is how is how technology is used in a particular social context. You can do tremendous environmental damage with even the best technology, and you know you can live in an ecologically um, harmonious way with a very very simple technology. It depends entirely on what you do with it. And so this focus on you know we're going to develop this technology which is going to save it is entirely misguided in um, in my view. And and there's a really simple point for that because the nature of capitalism is such that it must continually grow. Any new technology will be used to foster intensified growth. That's the point of it, and that's why, you know, capitalists want to take up these technologies. Well, the problem is then that a new and more efficient um, form of technology then fosters an intensified growth, which often means that it's more environmentally destructive than the technology that it replaced. And this is some, this is not just a theoretical point. This is something that has been shown over and over again. In the, in the literature, it's called the Jeevan's Paradox, that the replacement of inefficient technology by a more efficient technology actually tends to um, result in more energy being used. And so, so 
um, electric cars is a really, really good example. So the technology that's involved in them, certainly in a different kind of society, would be something that we could um, draw upon in a really sustainable kind of way. But if electrical cars is simply used to allow the car companies to continue to do the sorts of things that car companies have already done, albeit in a different form, all we're doing is replacing one problem with a different problem. And that's precisely the problem, precisely the difficulty with the way that, you know, Morrison and his ilk are presenting this problem. We don't need simply new technology. We have the technologies we need to, to solve the problem. The difficulty is the social system we live in won't allow us to deploy those technologies in a sensible way. Yeah, it's, and 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 it, with the urgency and the scale, and it's interesting you say that. I mean, it really rung true, and I actually copied the quote that I, uh, I heard the Prime Minister say, um, that the world does not need to be punished for climate change. We just need to fix it, and went on to say that those that are going to fix it are the entrepreneurs, the scientists, the technologists, the innovators, the industrialists, the finances, the risk takers, and there was no civil society in there, which is just sort of fascinating to me. But um, the other, you know, uh, just because I'm, I, I feel like I'm using it as a bit like an agony uncle, but the the idea that, um, you know, the term net zero, you know, this is a really important concept that came out of the Paris Agreement, net zero by 2050 or net zero earlier for richer countries and, and this idea of having a, a goal or an aim and that's going to help, you know, drive policy and, and, and drive technology and innovation and things like this to solve for it. Um, I, I'm wondering what, what do you think about, um, you know, this idea of co-opting that, that you've noticed or denial with, with companies, that where we see companies pledge to net zero by a certain date, um, how important it is that, that they're accountable for that, but at the same time, if that term, people stop believing it, if it's, you know, seen as a marketing term or you know, they say it, but they're not doing it, whether that kind of credibility undermining is something that we need to, to watch for. It's something that you do pick up in your book around the idea that you can muddy a term or muddy a, a technology and then it, it stops being as, as valued and therefore it stops having the power and the potency as well. I'm interested in your thoughts on that around net zero. Yeah, I mean, that, that is a really interesting point, isn't it? I mean, again and again, what we've seen is... Um, corporations and business interests really deliberately uh, popularising or even coining particular terms and particular phrases to entirely shift the conversation around pollution. So a couple of examples that I, I, I use in the book. One is the term litterbug that was actually coined by Keep America Beautiful um, in, in the 50s. Now, Keep America Beautiful was, in fact, a, a, um, a front organisation that was set up by uh, the big polluters who were responsible for um, packaging being um, distributed all across uh, America, and they set up Keep American, uh, America Beautiful specifically to prevent government legislation that would impinge on their business, and the way that they did it was to reframe the conversation to blame pollution not on corporations but on individuals. So the term litterbug was a way of saying actually the people responsible for pollution are not the companies but individuals who drop you know, who, 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 who drop the packaging that we of course provide for them. So it was explicitly a way of reframing the conversation. And um, the other more recent and in some ways more egregious um, example is um, the phrase 
carbon footprint, which was coined by BP, and for a very similar kind of reason, that um, they wanted to reframe the, the conversation about carbon pollution away from the... Um, away from a focus on companies like BP and the role that they play and by instead making individuals look at their own so-called carbon footprint and to turn the conversation back to individual responsibility. And there's a, there's a study by MIT that shows that because um, carbon is, is baked into the American economy, actually individuals can do almost nothing to, re- to, to reduce their individual share of that carbon. I think that that study showed that even a homeless person or a Buddhist monk in America still has like a massively high carbon footprint. Yeah, and I mean net zero, I I suppose, you know, at the moment it seems to be a very useful um, um, goal, I guess, to hold government and and companies to account. And I suppose it's a vigilance, isn't it, to make sure that it it does hold them to account, like uh, that, um, yeah, I'm interested in what, you know, this this one was, came out of the kind of broader agreement, but whether um, we, you know, how vigilant we should be around terms like that, do you think? Well, I mean, I think there's a there's a there's a fairly clear consensus amongst um, you know people who are serious about this stuff. Is what matters is what matters now is um, action immediately in the next few years, isn't it? And I think you know you can judge whether people are serious um, in their attitude to to say um, coal. You know, yeah, but the, by what they do now, yeah. What they do now, I mean, I just saw that Matt Canavan is now saying that uh, that uh, the Glasgow summit was gr- is, a, is a green light for Australia to open up more coal mines. So, you know, that, that's how the Australian government is seeing COP26, a victory for Australia because it will allow us to open more coal mines. Yeah. And I think that, that, that tells you everything you need to know about, you know, um, Australia's attitude to the whole process. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, you highlight throughout, um, you know, going back um, a century even and decades, how uh, just how sort of corporations have essentially duped um, ordinary people and really brought about behaviour change. If we think about plastics, for instance, and, and plastic bags and the idea of disposability being something that had people had to be convinced to throw things out because it went so against sort of our natural instincts of preserving things and reusing them and, and, and all that sort of stuff. But I suppose more broadly, you see a lot of, of hope and you really put the emphasis on the role that ordinary people can play here given that you know we're not necessarily uh, uh, you know meant to be or naturally inclined to destroy the planet we've seen I suppose at election time that climate change for whatever reason hasn't necessarily been the main issue people have voted on or at least prioritized candidates who are you know taking climate action really seriously what hope do you have for the future and what role can I suppose this uh, sort of idea or or motivation that you detect in the book for ordinary people wanting to to address climate change and, and not destroy the planet, basically, in sort of you know electoral politics going forward. What what might work? Yeah, I mean that, uh, that's that's a fascinating and um, and really um, important question. There's a lot to un- un- unpick there. I mean, the example of plastic is a really interesting one because. If you look historically, the, the, the common sense position that we, we, we're told about 
you know, about, say, the use of plastic bags is that, that as consumers, we're incredibly lazy and we, we want instant comfort. So, of course, we're going to demand a plastic bag and that's why plastic pollution is such a, such a problem. And, 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 and as you say, that's, in fact, historically not what happened at all. The plastic companies recognised that there was no real desire for plastic and they set out to create one and they did everything possible to prevent people from recycling plastic, which is people's first reaction. There's amazing descriptions of how people were hanging out plastic bags on their um, clotheslines so they could be used again. And there was this like deliberate campaign to stop them doing that. But as part of that campaign, um, the, the, the recycling that people used to do was made more and more difficult and packaging became more and more ubiquitous so people had less and less of a choice. And when people have less and less of a choice, then you can't blame them for, for, for acting in certain ways. So, you know, we live in cities now where it's very, very difficult, you know, to, to get your kids around with a car, for instance. So you can't blame people for having cars in that environment. I think you can... Um, make by analogy the same sort of argument about our political choices. Actually, most people, if you talk to them, you know, on a one-on-one level, care really passionately about, you know, the place in which they, they live and its natural values. It's just that in the political choices that are presented to them, um, climate change seems like an abstraction. It seems like something none of the parties are going to do anything about. And so you can understand why it doesn't really register, um, you know, necessarily as the number one political issue. And I think that the thing that makes a difference is when people feel that they actually can change the world. So, you know, that the social movements that, that present people with an op, with um, real choices and allow them to think that other people share their values um, actually transform what seem to be the options available to them. Um, and I think that's where the source of, 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 um, of hope lies. Everyone knows... Well, okay, one of the examples I keep coming back to is... Um, in, in, in recent years, we saw the Black Lives Matter movement um, take shape, and you know, quite extraordinarily, um, uh, it's now it's now probably the biggest political movement of all time in terms of the number of people who took part in it. When that movement was at its height, it totally transformed the way that most of the media say and most of the politicians talked about issues of policing and race and violence in America. So the movement itself created more opportunities and allowed allowed people ways to get involved in things. And I think that that's what we need to see around climate as well. When we have a movement of that sort of scale, um, more opportunities open up for people and it becomes much, much easier for people to get involved and, and to have a sense of hope. Yeah, and I think it was hopeful to see, um, you know, just circling back to the COP26, that the, the protests outside and the criticism of, of a watered-down pack, even though it was progress, um, that it elicited a, an apology from the president of those talks is, is progress and it is hopeful because that has never happened before. So, um, you know, we take what we get, I, uh, we can get, I guess. Um, Jeff, um, fantastic to have you again. And, um, oh, yeah, by, by the way, how, how's your... Um, book going. I, I've, I've seen some uh, very nice reviews and, and, and comments. Um, yeah, I mean, people like your know. positive outlook. <laughs> that's me. It's a sunny disposition. That's me. I'm well known for my positive outlook. And, that, and that's how calm. We hope you can come back next month. Um, yeah, it's good chatting. 
right. Thanks so much, guys. Bye. I really appreciate Thanks, it. Jeff. Cheers. Bye. See ya. Uh, Jeff Sparrow there, Crimes Against Nature, is his latest book. It's out through Scribe, and um, the subtitle is Capitalism and Global Heating. And, yeah, Real, real Solutions Orientation, I reckon, quite hopeful and empowering. So, yeah, get your hands on it if you can. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. And public transport usage stats show that a huge number of people who would normally use public transport haven't needed to because of the lockdowns or feel nervous to because of concerns around social distancing. But there are other concerns that women and girls have on top of this about using public transport, and that's the feeling of not being safe. Um, it's an area that researchers from three universities, La Trobe, Monash and RMIT, have been focused on. Um, the project they've been running together is called Tram Lab, and it's uh, looked at the safety of our tram networks, um, seeing the tram networks through a gender lens, and it's resulted in a range of toolkits being developed. And Professor Angela Tuft from La Trobe is a world-leading expert on gender-based violence and was chair of the project, and it's really great to have you there on the phone. Angela, good morning. Good morning to you. And um, your research found that despite women's use and experience of public transport being different from men's, um, this fact that women and girls' uh, safety concerns are widespread aren't often considered in the, the delivery of our tram or public transport services. And I wonder, why do you think that is? Like, why is that experience not to date being taken into account? It's very hard to know, um, but I think that certainly we we spoke to a lot of women um, for, for this particular project, and they've had all sorts of experiences from men putting their hands on their knees, people followed on and off trains, so it's all of the public transport system, leered out, harassed on the way to school or uni, um, right through to the trigger for this project, actually, was the extreme where women were sexually assaulted and murdered. Um, and I guess Eurydice Dixon is one of the young women who come first to mind. So that was why that was why we set up the project. Why there hasn't been a gender lens on this issue is surprising um, because actually women and girls are the majority users of public transport because they have many different roles to play, you know, whether they're taking kids... Um, to and from, or they've got caring responsibilities, or whether they're just going to and from um, school, uni, work. Um, but we found that, you know, even in the data collected that about this, so that, you know, public transport um, managers and policymakers could actually see what the trends are, often the data's not collected. Um, so that's just one of many problems that the four toolkits that we developed um, were to help those stakeholders to address this problem and to have a better gender lens to look at. But I think, yeah, who knows? Yeah, I can't. I can't answer why it hasn't been done. All, all the more need for the, for this research, though, and, and to really embed yeah. it in in policy going forward. And based on the research yeah. you've done and all the women that you've spoken to, what's really stood mm. out to you in terms of the issues they've faced and and where I suppose they've felt unsafe using um, Melbourne's uh, tram network. Well, our, um, our Monash colleagues did a really good study um, with Plan International, looking at 
uh, asking women to kind of mark on a, on, a, on a map or tell us where um, they felt unsafe. And so we've got a fairly good idea. And the, the kinds of places, I mean, there were two trams that stood out, one that goes up to Bandura, which is where our university is located, and that's a really bad one, the 86 and the 57. Um, so there are certain trams where, if you like, some of the stops aren't well lit, um, the trams are run down and not well cared for, um, train stations that aren't well lit or well staffed. Um, uh, so we know that there are a range of public transport systems and times of the day and places and um, rolling stock themselves that aren't well cared for that cause women to feel unsafe. But there's also just the general thing of... of Oh, I guess, you know, some of us not saying when when we see that behaviour, not calling it out and say that's not acceptable, I'm going to call whoever, a public safety officer or I'm going to call such and such or why don't you stop doing that? So part of our um, toolkit is, you know, to try and encourage more people to step up and say something and not just to kind of look the other way. Yeah, and the idea that people on the tram have have a responsibility to for other people on the tram to to a certain degree, or, or the yeah. train is is a really you know it's a different concept, isn't it? Because I, I think yep. there is a sense that people will kind of stay plugged in or or not not say anything. But I mean, yeah. what? So with regards to the toolkits you've developed, one of them is around communications, and is that yeah. sort of part of it, like getting different messages out to users of public Definitely. transport that about what. Their, what, yes. what they might do in certain circumstances if they, they witness something? or Yes. Yes, it definitely is. So it's kind of to, to encourage bystanders to take a part, take a part to uh, communicate to people who do offend like that that it's not okay. Um, and then we hope to have a process developed. I mean, we, ne- we need an overarching policy and, and, and plan for this so that it's got... Um, resources allocated to it, but we we do feel that there is a real a real willingness and, and uh, an encouraging willingness to 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 do this to take it forward. Um, so it also involves training so that the public safety officers actually take it up rather than ignore it and, and do the easy stuff. They also take the more difficult stuff, like you know, stepping in and, and saying it's not okay and, I, and I'm going to report this. Um, and then knowing how to report and what kind of information they should report. So that if there are repeat offenders, and we know that the police have picked out repeat offenders, that they can be actually identified and stopped. Yeah, it's a good point, isn't it? Because there is a, a case study you've shared uh, in the media release for this where essentially yeah. there's a woman who alerted ticket yeah. inspectors on a, on a tram to a man who was making her feel unsafe and they yeah. ultimately intervened and it turned out that he'd been following her for some time, kind of all through the city yeah. onto the tram and you really shudder yep. to think what could have happened if those ticket inspectors weren't there and, you know, often people yeah. <laughs> are a bit um, can get a bit worried or, or scared when they see ticket inspectors if they don't have a valid ticket, for instance, but it really highlights how those who are on trams can play a really important role in this space. So, so I suppose if these toolkits were developed into practice, what would it look like on trams to ensure that there were resources and, and greater visibility for highlighting some of these issues and, and where people could seek help if they felt unsafe and, and in danger? Yes, well, the women actually wanted something to be dealt with, you know, in real time, like immediately. And I guess if we had PSOs that were trained to think that actually, and a, a, 
uh, potential assault or or harassment of women is or, and girls is more important than actually getting a, a ticket that hasn't been paid. You know, it's where they put their priorities and that they feel that they are well-skilled and they have a policy and they know what to do and how to do it, um, then they will feel safer themselves um, and that, that it would be reported and it would be monitored and trends looked at over time and then action taken. Because one of the really, the things that stick in my mind was one of the times when somebody went to um, actually report and the first question asked on, on the website was, are you willing to go to court? Now, that's a very confronting question, particularly for young women. If they're wanting to report something, what they want to say is, look, I've, I felt very afraid. This is the reason why. What will you do about it? Not, are you willing to go to court? Mm. Yeah, it's it's that is a really you you wouldn't expect that to be the first question, particularly if you felt unsafe. Nothing exactly happened to you, but it's a sense, and you're worried about the next user on a tram or something like that. Then yeah, that's a completely different question, isn't it? To to be able yeah. to capture that sort of data. And we're speaking yeah. about a project called Tram Lab, and Professor Angela Tuft is our guest, and uh, she's with Latrobe Uni. And uh, so where to from here with with Tram Lab? Like it's you've you've come a long way with yeah. developing four toolkits, uh, and you've raised um, awareness of them, and and that you know ideally this will inform an overarching gender sensitive policy framework for for public transport. What what comes now? Oh. Well, the government, I mean, the government funded this project and we've actually, um, we've sought funding from a, a federal government source because what we'd like to do is extend it beyond the metropolitan area to the rural and regional areas because, you know, there people are more sparse on trains and trains are very important. Um, so we'd like to see what the issues are there and how they might be dealt with and also interstate. So we would really like to take these forward and to do some piloting, for example, the placemaking toolkit was piloted in the um, Darabin area local government, we'd like to see it in other local government areas and picked up and piloted and maybe taken on board for all all the um, uh, local government areas where women lived and for all the diversity of women so one of the things that we um, we, we've, we've noticed so there's a, that their safety concerns haven't been considered in the service delivery um, but that we want to to take these really practical solutions and raise better awareness of the issue and design safer public spaces and talk to women and girls in the area so that if you're in an LGA which has a really diverse community or there are, you know, gay and trans women or there's a lot of younger women with children and and prams or there are a lot of disabled women. We had an awful story of a disabled woman who was assaulted while she was trying to get on a bus um, and, I mean, sexually assaulted, and that the tram driver, the bus driver did nothing about it. Um, we want that to change, so we really, really want, and we've had good buy-in from um, public transport providers, that we go forward with it. So we actually um, put an overarching policy, start to do some training programs, um, develop a communication campaign, um, develop, you know, there is not a consistent minimum data set across all the public transport services. So, you know, if you, the data that's collected for trams and the data that's collected for buses, they're all different. We want to say, look, you all should be collecting this data. You should at least ask what gender they are, you know, what background, what happened, where, at what time, in what place, so that there's a consistency and we can look right across the system 
and say, OK, there's a real problem here for this group of women. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's it's such important research, and hopefully there's there's much more productive work to come from this. But it is good to see that the Victorian government is is funding this research, and it looks like there's um there's some momentum for change in that space. Yeah, and and also just as patronage for our public transport system increases again, I've certainly noticed yeah. more people on trams and trains, and I know you know safety yeah. numbers. There is a sense that, um, well, I certainly feel that way. If there's more people um, on a tram, at least I could move seats or something like that to. to nearby somebody who looks um, like it would make me feel more safe so you know when I've seen such so many empty trains and trams recently that has been something on my mind and I wonder you know a lot of people wouldn't think like that would they if they haven't experienced what it's like to be the only person on a train carriage with someone you didn't you didn't feel safe with so lots to do Um, well done Angela and your team and uh, yeah we'll be um, paying attention to what comes next thanks heaps a pleasure. Thanks for having an interest in it. No worries. Professor Angela Tuff there from La Trobe Uni. Uh, Tram Lab is the project. There's a whole bunch of universities involved, La Trobe Monash and RMIT. And we've talked to, to some of the researchers at different times over the past couple of years about various different projects they're working on. And it looks like this one um, might bear some results. Let's hope. Triple. Ah. Uh. The government's COVID-19 disaster payments for those who lost work as a result of the pandemic are set to end very soon. And this means that those out of work will face the prospect of applying for JobSeeker, which currently sits at just under $630 a fortnight for singles. This comes too as the unemployment and underemployment rates have increased in the month of October, indicating that it still remains a pretty tough job market. Emma King is CEO of the Victorian Council of Social Service to talk about these issues. She joins us on the line. Hi, Emma. Great to have you back on The Grapevine. Welcome. Oh, hello. And thank you so much for having me. Much appreciated. And so these disaster payments were slated to end a couple of weeks after we hit the 80% double uh, dose vaccination target. So we kind of knew this was going to happen. Is this too soon, though, to be uh, removing these payments for those who have been receiving them? Look, it is. Um, I think it's pretty optimistic to assume that everything's just going to kind of bounce back and be like it was pre-pandemic. We know that's not going to happen. Um, and it would be great if it did, but it's not. Um, and so what it means is that the future is really bleak. So, you know, we've got more than 200,000 Victorians who are still receiving the COVID disaster payment. The jobs market hasn't bounce back and we know that on average there's about six unemployed people you know applying for every job vacancy in Australia so what it's going to mean is that people move from the COVID disaster payment um, on, onto JobSeeker which we know is just ludicrously low people can't afford to buy fresh food they can't afford to pay the rent and it's actually pretty hard to look for a job and try and pay your bills which you can't actually pay so what it means is we've got a government that's taking people off the disaster payments and moving them onto a payment that's below the poverty line, which is reprehensible. And this seems like it is a couple of weeks since the 80% double dose Mm. was hit, so that was over the cup weekend. So is this kind of, you know, the week for a lot of people where where it changes what what they'll be living on? It is. So knowing that the the week of the last payment is the 12th to 18th of November and also noting that once we hit that double dose vaccination rate, the payments already started tapering off. 
So in that last week, you know, it goes from a payment that was up to $750 a week if, if you were unable to find work to a maximum of 320 a week. And also if you're already um, receiving some form of income support, which might only be a few dollars a week, as of this week, there's nothing. Yeah, and and it's really tough. I mean, as I mentioned, unemployment has increased. In Victoria, it went up by 0.9% uh, in October, and that was the, um, the the second biggest state or territory to have a rise. I think ACT was was substantially higher. But, but does Victoria face particular challenges in this regard, you know, in relation to the job market and, and those who might then, you know, need to, to transition on to JobSeeker once these payments wind up, given the extended lockdowns we, we've had in this state? Yeah, I, I think that's right. We, we're in a unique situation because of the, the lockdowns that we've had. And I don't think anyone's quibbling with the general health advice, or some people probably are, given some of the strange protests we're seeing. But more generally, we know that the the methods, under, the, the, the work that was undertaken was, was designed to keep people safe. Um, but we've had a pretty tough, fundamentally, two years. And... I think that um, I, I think that the federal government's. Pre- it's, I feel like I've been talking sort of to deaf ears on that front in terms of what that means to Victorians, and also knowing it at, at different points how it's played out differently across the state as well. So you know, we talk a lot about everyone being in the same same storm, but in different boats. We know people are impacted have been impacted very differently by this pandemic. Um, some people have been lucky enough to keep their jobs throughout. Others haven't, um, and for many um, that that haven't, you know, we're seeing a really significant impact on our frontline services. Uh, for a number of people who are needing to use frontline services for help for food, for support that have never needed to use those services before and probably didn't think that they ever would. Um, and, and, yeah, we can see the real difference because when the, when the pandemic first hit and we saw that real increase to JobSeeker, which was doubled, as well as the as JobKeeper coming in for all of its flaws, it was designed, I think, with, with a... a you know, good intent. Um, what we, we saw during that time actually was people who were on job seeker who got an amount of money that meant they weren't in poverty. They could pay food, they, they could buy food, they could pay for their bills. They were lifted out of poverty for the first time in their lives. And the, all of the research shows their money went straight back into things like you know, food, etc. So really helped our economy keep going. But what it also meant for a number of people on JobKeeper is that their income was less than what it had been and, and didn't meet expenses. So they were actually needing help to kind of get by. In the meanwhile, let alone those people who were not eligible for either payment. So um, we, we saw real differences in between the, the haves and have-nots. And it's a really interesting point about the choice and the choice that government makes because the, the government chose to lift people out of poverty for a while, which was, you know, a really, it just shows that it can be done. And now we're watching it shift and basically people are being crunched back into poverty. Um, and JobSeeker is not a net that safeguards you from poverty. It's a net that traps you into poverty. Yeah, and I, I wonder um, your thoughts on, I mean, when I was sort of preparing um, to speak with you, Emma, I was, you know, doing doing the research I, I do and, and there, there's been so little, little written about this, this transition um, so far anyway from people um, going from this latest disaster payment through to what this, you know, um, double-vaxxed world looks like for us. Um, yeah. Uh, 
you know, why is it, do you think, that we're, we're not really focusing or, or talking about this? I mean, you said it was 200,000 people in, in Victoria that are relying on this payment at the moment. Why aren't we talking about it, do you think, that much? I mean, we are now, but in general. Yes. I almost think it's, as you mentioned in your intro, I wonder whether it's kind of um, crept up or whether the, the commentary is being taken over by other things in terms of as, as um, people just start to feel often, you know, I've had lots of people say to me, look, I feel really nervous about what the next steps mean. And almost, um, it's almost that post-traumatic response, isn't it? When you think about what, what the our, our state has been through, what the country has been through over the last few years and um, yeah I think it's I think it's a really good point that you raise because what we saw at the beginning of the pandemic was if you think about those lines around Centrelink and I think that it meant that the government thought it had no option other than to increase payments and as that's becoming less visible what we're seeing is that play out in real policy terms and I, I would put a lot of it down to that I think when it was really visible we saw government uh, make policies that lifted people out of poverty. Now that it's less visible, we don't have people lining up around the Centrelink offices in the same way. Suddenly we're seeing with support tapering off in a way that I think the majority of people don't quite understand. Mm. Speaking with Emma King, CEO of Victorian Council of Social Service, all about the the end of the COVID-19 disaster payments, which have been the latest support measure for those who have lost work throughout the pandemic. They're uh, set to end, having been wound back uh, very soon. And, I mean, on that note, Emma, that there are these assumptions, uh, as you, you talked about at the beginning of our conversation, that, you know, once we're, we're sort of out of lockdowns, the economy will roar back. But, you know, anecdotally, we all know people and, and feel it ourselves that, you you know, everyone's not sort of doing too well at the moment. Um, we're sort of emerging gingerly from the past couple of years and particularly for those who have lost work and, and are looking for work and thinking about how to support themselves and their family. You know, things, things are different. Things are, are extra tough now. It's not just that we emerge from, from lockdown and then suddenly we're, we're good to go. Uh, Brett Sutton, Victoria's Chief Health Officer and Professor Stephen Duckett have published an editorial um, just today in the, the Melbourne uh, Journal, uh, Medical Journal for Australia calling for more in the national plan to to address the ongoing economic and social inequalities and, and mental health issues that yeah. will linger in this next phase of, of the pandemic. Uh, do, you, do you imagine that, you know, there will be much, much will, I suppose, to really look at this going forward and, and how we can best support people in the months and years ahead, given, you know, the, the lingering effects of, of their experience over the past few years? Yeah, and if I can just, um, I, I think it's been so, I think it'll be really influential given that it was Stephen Duckett and Brett Sutton writing that article as well around calling out something really key that's missing because I think the comment, the, the sort of the plan that's there sort of shows this assumption that, you know, you're just bound to that. The commentary that I've seen today around um, that report has been to say, well, actually, the pandemic showed the cracks in the system. It showed the poverty that exists. It showed the issues that played out in our um, public housing estates. It showed a whole lot of um, issues which we all we all know about, but they came to the fore. And we're going to have to look at how do we address those issues, both, as you say, from a health and a, a social equity response as well. So I would like to think that um, having a range of people and perhaps those who were not ordinarily commentating in this space around what it meant for people who are in poverty and, and inequality, etc. I think there were two key things. One is they called that out, but also saying that that transition piece 
is missing um, when we look at the forward plan. And that's something I think we can really see when we look at the COVID payments. And even when you just look purely at the employment market, we know that um, for some people, they will be back in full work. And that's great. We know that there's plenty of others who will not be able to get the hours that they need and there's others who will not be able to get any hours. So it's not an even playing field, nor has it ever been, but I think COVID really magnified that and it magnified insecure work. It magnified, you know, when we look at, from a better term, the caring economy with aged care and up where you, know, you see very low pay, it's highly feminised um, and highly insecure work. So we saw that play out in particular ways I do think we've got an opportunity to address that and you really call on the government to take this opportunity and to harness it because my worry is if we don't do it now, when are we going to? Yeah, and I, I guess that, you know, assumptions, uh, we're, we're looking at the assumptions in the, the the idea that we will bounce back economically and woohoo, um, it'll float all boats or whatever, mm. but um, we we also shouldn't make assumptions that all of the cracks that we could see writ large are actually being um, healed or, or mended um, with what we've got on the, on the table at the moment. I wonder just quickly what, with regards to housing affordability, I know, um, you know, house prices are, are very high and there's been a lot of discussion around that. I imagine some of that is flowing on to rents. Like, is there an issue there as well, Emma, around how much people can get for rent support and things like that when we know, you know, the the private um, market is actually kind of booming at the moment, particularly with house sales? Yes, um, out of, it's out of control, isn't it? And you look at the fact that it's metro and regional as well, where often people moved regionally because they would save on their rents, even though that didn't necessarily cover through to other parts of their life, you know, travel costs, etc. Now we're looking at that regional boom at the same time and seeing lots of commentary about what that means for people who want to stay living in their local area, but they're being pushed out uh, because other people are... are fundamentally moving into town and pushing the prices up. So that's um, that's pretty dire for a lot of people in our regional areas. Plus, as you say, look at the, that extraordinary boom in house prices. And again, another article in the paper today that was saying, you know, if there's just a minor adjustment in terms of, um, you know, looking at what interest rates would be, what that impact would have as well. So it feels a bit like a tinderbox that's about to go off to me um, in that it's, Prices are going through the roof. It's flowing onto rentals. And, and what does that mean? If you're low income, what's left for you? Because uh, fundamentally, it's not much. Well, you know, um, they say hope is not a strategy, but let's hope um, that yeah. that tinderbox does not go up. Um, thanks so much, uh, Emma. It's been great speaking to you on Triple R. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Absolute pleasure. Emma King there, Chief Executive Officer of Victorian Council of Social Service. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.